permaculture convergences and singing events and so on. And uh, I've been so inspired by what he's, he's passionate about. And uh, so, as you I'm sure gathered, this is a night to start uh, taking a look at what we might do to actually become we the people again. Uh, in, a, in a more conscious and focused and skillful way. And he's been working on this for many years. Paul lives in Portland now, and uh, for years he's been uh, providing these portable bookstores at various activist events and conferences and so on, and uh, has been a huge resource for, for many people for many years, but for I don't know how many years now you've also been focusing on this and it's become his life, passion, and work. So, 16 years yeah. on this work. So please welcome Paul Cienfuegos. Thank you. Thank you, Lawrence. Um, thank you to everybody who has worked so hard to make this happen on a very, very short notice. It's kind of remarkable to get 60 folks or so out on a couple weeks' notice or less than a week notice. So I'm, I'm honored. Thank you for coming. Um, so, um, yeah, my name is Paul Cienfuegos. I've been a grassroots community organizer ever since I went to the Evergreen State College in 1976. <laughs> I am a greener grad, and uh, I bet some of you are too. And um, I've been cl as close to a full-time community organizer um, as I could figure out how to be after I got politically charged up and mobilized in the late 1970s. And um, just a very brief history about my activism to kind of launch into why I do what I do. Um, I spent the first 15 years or so of my activist history, starting around 1976, um, working on a whole variety of issues, including clear-cut logging, nuclear power and nuclear weapons, Native sovereignty, a couple other different things. Um, and it never even crossed my mind in those first 15 years or so that really all I was doing was working on symptoms. I wasn't actually working on issues. I was working on symptoms. I was working on symptoms of corporations having constitutional rights and therefore having all sorts of incredible, not just economic power, but legal power. Um, and I'm going to spend a good chunk of the evening talking, telling you about what I mean by that. And so back in like 94 or 95, um, in Earth Island Journal, wonderful quarterly from Earth Island Institute, I came upon an excerpt from an article that was the founding document of a new movement that had started in 1993. It was written by Richard Grossman. And it was an excerpt from a pamphlet called Taking Care of Business, Citizenship and the Charter of Incorporation. Um, and one page excerpt from that that appeared in Earth Island Journal changed my life forever. And um, Richard Grossman, who had just the previous year founded uh, POCLAD, P-O-C-L-A-D, POCLAD.org, which stands for the Program on Corporations, law, and democracy. And POCLAD was a think tank that was created to provoke democratic conversations about how can it be that we have more and more activist groups working on more and more issues all the time, and yet everything seems to be getting more and more dire. 
what's going on here? What is the explanation for this? And what they concluded in their think tank is that we'd all been working on symptoms of corporate rule, that we weren't really working on the structural, uh, the, the structural reality that allowed corporations to have more rights than we do, not just more economic power through their wealth, but more rights, that their rights trumped our rights. And, and thus began um, what is now a couple decades of legal and historical research by POCLAD, Program on Corporations, Law, and Democracy. So I was stunned by this, um, and I started changing the way I worked. And I founded a group called Democracy Unlimited of Humboldt County, on the far north coast of California, and, um, and off I went. And so we started modeling um, in Arcata, California, and now in, in Humboldt County, uh, countywide, what would it look like to model a new kind of activism where we're not actually focusing on pleading with corporate leaders or regulators or elected officials to cause a little mm -hmm. less harm, but that we're actually exercising our authority to govern ourselves, that we're exercising our authority as we the people, the sovereign people of the United States, what would it look like to do activism in a fundamentally different way? And that's what I've been doing ever since, since around 1994, 95. So what I'm going to do um, over the next uh, couple hours is the microscopic version of my two-day workshop. Um, in my two-day workshop, and I'm hoping that at least five or 10 or 15 of you get excited enough about this evening's workshop that you bring me back for the two-day workshop. Because uh, if we're actually going to start challenging um, the powers that be in the society in a way that's more powerful than just one corporate harm at a time or one corporation at a time, and start looking at the structures that give them all of this power to do what they do, we're going to have to get much more serious than we are as single-issue activists and start looking at the legal structures. Um, and I don't want to scare you when I say legal structures. It's not that the movement is just for lawyers and law students. It's really a culture shift movement, but there's a legal component to it. So um, in my two-day workshop, I spend the first five hours doing a history lesson of how corporations came to gain so many uh, constitutional rights. And we spend the entire second day um, looking at existing conventional single-issue campaigns and reframing them as, as symptoms of corporate rule. Tonight, what I'm going to do um, is I'm going to spend the, the next 45 minutes giving you the, the, the nugget version of a five-hour US history lesson. Um, and then we'll, have, we'll be open for conversation for a while. Um, we'll take a break. Um, we'll come back. Lawrence is going to sing a song that I hope to join him on. And, um, and then we'll have, I'm going to do a much shorter presentation about this extraordinary new social movement that calls itself the community rights movement that has successfully already in the last 10 years um, helped 150 communities in, in nine states and climbing now to pass legally binding, locally enforceable law that bans all sorts of harmful corporate activities which are totally legal um, according to the state and federal government, but the local communities had enough, so they're banned, mm -hmm. and which strips those corporations of all of their constitutional rights, which makes it much more difficult for that 
sector of corporations in the community to come back and challenge the community's decision through law. So 150 communities in nine states now and climbing, um, and it's very exciting over the last decade, and almost none of them have been legally challenged. And I'll talk about that and as to why that is, why we think that is, because the, the corporate lawyers are not exactly sharing us with us their reasons for mostly not challenging these laws. But um, clearly they're paying attention. <clears throat> and so we'll spend, we'll spend part of the second half of the evening um, with me doing some storytelling about this and what's starting to happen in Oregon and Washington. The movement is really just launching here. Um, the states are almost entirely on the East Coast so far. Um, and then we'll spend, hopefully we'll have about 20 minutes left at the end of that to talk about how this might be relevant for your community and what steps, what initial steps we might take in this community um, to do something powerful around this work. Because every community has problems that have to do with corporate power, and yours is no exception. So I'm going to launch in. Does anybody have a quick, any clarifying questions or anything else before I launch into a brief history lesson? Paul, here. Um, you said 150 communities. Are those actual communities that have passed their um, ordinances, and they're in effect? Yes. Yeah. And they've kept out a whole variety of corporate harms, and I'll get into those details in the second half of the evening. Yeah, it's, it's really quite remarkable. Yeah, I was just wondering how we're doing. The last thing I heard, Pennsylvania was a large issue, and that they were being overturned. We're going to get to that in the second half of the evening. I'm, I'm not going to jump ahead like that. I just wanted to fracking, yeah. of course, 20 million people's water. We're going to talk about fracking okay. in the second half. Yeah. You're going to come. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to cover a lot, and um, and because there's so much material here, and I just I because this is paradigm shifting work, um, this is really a very different way of looking at who we are in relation to corporations as a legal form. Um, there's, I have to give you a fairly comprehensive overview. It's a very brief but comprehensive overview, um, and I promise you this is not boring. But but I'm going to give you a lot of historical and legal information in the next 45 minutes. All right, let's go. So, um, so what I want to begin with is to just remind you what the, um, let's see, is that going to work? I want to... I don't know why I don't hang this in advance, but I didn't. Um, I want to remind people of who we are in relation to our government and to corporations, at least constitutionally. Yeah, it's, it's a little long. So, um, At least according to the Constitution, we are we the people. We have legal personhood, which means we have the ability to assert rights as the people. All legitimate power rests with us. We are the sovereign, which means we have the authority to rule. We seized that authority, our sovereign authority from the king in the American Revolution. It's okay. You don't need to do that. <laughs> um, how, who knows here? How, I'm sure if, at least a few of you know where did the king of England claim that he got his sovereignty from? God. From God. He literally claimed 
that God had granted him the authority to rule over any lands that he could reach. And interestingly enough, he used what was called the Crown Corporation as the legal entity, the legal form, to project his political, economic, legal, military power. Right? They were corporations chartered by the king. He put his own trusted officials in charge at every level, and he sent them out to vacuum up resources from all over the world. So the one that we're most one of the ones we're most familiar with is the East India Company. Right? That the East India Company was the legal entity that was projected into India to become the governing authority of India, right? A country that already had its own legal structures, its own government, its own enforcement of laws, right? Its own culture, its own social norms. And the East India Company projected a whole new norm, legal, economic, political, military norm. And it, it gave itself the authority to govern, it gave itself, the king gave it the authority to make new laws, imprison people, execute people, make all sorts of things illegal in another sovereign nation, right? That was part of, and this was all done through the Crown Corporation. And the history of empires projecting their power using the Crown Corporation, chartered by the king, um, goes back to the early 1400s. Well, it turns out, if you look at early American history, and I did not learn this in high school, but it's true, you can look it up, is that the 13 colonies in the United States, every one of them was either chartered by the King of England or, or was controlled by a corporation, was, or the, it, the king had chartered a corporation that controlled that colony. So either each one was controlled by a crown corporation or was a crown corporation. 13 original colonies. So the Pennsylvania Company became the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and on and on and on. Uh, how, did people know that, that we were founded as, as corporations? So in a large, in a, in a, in a really, uh, in a real sense, you could call the American Revolution an anti-corporate rule revolution. <laughs> that the corporation was already the dominant institution of the time, used as an oppressive legal vehicle, right? to project political, economic, legal, military power. So it was an anti-corporate rule revolution. It threw off the sovereignty of the king. It invested sovereignty in we the people. Frequently in a revolution, sovereignty is invested in the new government of the revolutionaries. Interestingly, interestingly that's not what happened here. Sovereignty was invested in the people, in we the people. And we, the people, then start taking these 13 colonies and constitutionalizing them and turning each one into a state with uh, an executive, a legislative, and a judicial branch, just as we're familiar with at the federal government. Now, I don't want to make this sound utopian. Who is we, the people, at this point? White males property. with property, with certain amounts of property, each state lists the amount of property required differently. Um, it was something like 5 to 10% of, of the human beings alive in, the United, in what became the United States um, were white propertied men. So we started with pretty profound minority rule situation, 5 to 10%. But interestingly, although that's you know, not terrific by democracy standards, it was a pretty major step forward in terms of what had come before. 
right? We went from the king basically making all critical decisions to 5 to 10% of us making all critical decisions. There's another major problem is that um, this entire new structure of democracy, quote unquote, is built on genocide of native people, right? On a land that was not empty of, you know, of human beings as, as was the claim at the time. So um, it is a very imperfect and very bloody early democracy in the United States. Um, but we start there. And interestingly, we don't start with what is now called the Constitution. I, it's, I don't know how many people know about the Articles of Incorporation, I mean the Articles of Confederation, but the Constitution, as we now refer to it, I now call the second U.S. Constitution because we actually had a U.S. Constitution and those who wrote it in, intended for it to be our long-term Constitution, the Articles of Confederation. Um, and the folks who were part of the American Revolution were so furious at what happened to their Articles of Confederation that there ended up being a massive split. But in the original Articles of Confederation, there was no, I don't know if folks know this, again, this is something I've only learned really since getting involved in this work in the last decade, there was no executive branch, no president in other words, there was no Senate, which some would call consistent with the House of Lords in Britain, kind of the Millionaires Club, right? No Senate. And there was no Supreme Court in our original Constitution. The intention coming straight out of a Revolutionary War was we're going to create something that's fundamentally different than the British system. We're going to create something that's more democratic, fundamentally more democratic at the local and state level. And Congress, which was created, was a Congress of states. States sent delegates to Congress, and all the federal government really did was it played a facilitative role to coordinate state activities. And the president was simply the president of the Congress. He presided over Congress. He facilitated that conversation. He didn't have executive roles, nor was there a, co a court that had ultimate authority that nobody could overrule or appeal. So it was a very, a very different kind of system. And the power elite were not comfortable at all with that, by that end product. And so over the, la the next 10 or 15 years, they, they requested and got a couple of different meetings that took place that illegally threw out the Articles of Confederation and we ended up with the US Constitution. Um, and I know that probably to some of you sounds like a conspiracy theory, but look it up. It's very interesting. It's hidden in plain sight. And just like the history of the Indians was written by the conquerors of the Indians, until very recently there really weren't honest uh, histories about the US, about Indian native people in this country. The history of the Constitution the history of the Articles of Confederation and the proponents of the Articles were written by the other side. They were written by the Federalists against, and, and the history of the, of the first Constitution is pretty much kind of hidden in plain sight. It's supposed to be, we're supposed to understand it. If you go to the Wikipedia or other res, you know, resources online and you look up Articles of, of Confederation, what you'll find out is that um, it was too weak. That's the word frequently used. Um, to hold a strong federal government together. But that was the whole point, is the revolutionaries didn't want a strong federal government, they wanted strong state governments, right? 
It was the United States of America was a plural back then. Now it's singular. But it literally, that was a plural, the name of our country. So we went from strong, more localized democracy to a strong federal system, which worked much better for the elite. So, but even though all of that is true, here we are as we the people, 5 to 10% of the population. And one of the things that we the people decided to do, that we the people delegated, was to create government that served us. It was subordinate to us. You'll see this in the constitutional language. It was accountable to us. We delegated authority. It has collective duties and responsibilities to us. And one of the duties that we, the people, delegated to state governments, specifically state legislatures, was the power to charter corporations. And a charter is simply what we now think of as the Articles of Incorporation. That's all a charter is. It's the, it is the defining document of, of a business entity, of a, of, a, of a business structure that, if you think about it, is just a legal fiction. And what I mean by that is you can't, there's, it doesn't exist in reality, right? If I asked you to go out and take a picture of Monsanto Corporation, you actually couldn't do that because it's just in our heads. You could take a picture of its headquarters, its employees, its board of directors, but you couldn't take a picture of Monsanto Corporation because all it is is a business structure. It's a legal fiction. Does that make sense? <clears throat> and we've given this legal fiction enormous, we've projected onto it in, over the last century, enormous power. So we imagine Monsanto and Exxon and BP and all the others to be uh, Goliaths. And how do we, the little people, battle these Goliaths? But in reality, the intention of the founding fathers in this country was for corporations to be subordinate to us, and the state legislatures were to define corporations in a way that created, that, that allowed them to serve one particular social need and to cause no harm. That was the language in the charters. So state government was empowered to charter corporations. An interesting way to think about the early use of these for-profit corporations was to put private money to a public use. Isn't that interesting? So the early for-profit corporations in the first century in this country were things like uh, to build a major a bridge over a big river or to build a canal or to build and run a cotton mill or a grain mill. The things that required investors with capital to come together and, ha with, and, and have a lot more capitalization, capitalization, major projects, major economic projects. So corporations were chartered to serve one specific social need and cause no harm. They were created by state legislatures uniquely one at a time. Each one had its own unique charter. As I said, they were legal fictions. They were given privileges, not rights, in their charter. This is very important because this is the opposite of corporate rights or corporate personhood rights. And these, and these legal fictions were responsible to us. They served us. And that was actually, so this is the intention coming out of the American Revolution, but it's also the reality for almost the first century. And over the first century, we lose more and more of what I've described. But clearly in those first decades, this is exactly what was going on. So let me just share with you a few of the specific kinds of, of prohibitions and requirements 
that were written right into every corporate charter uh, after the American Revolution. No corporation shall own property, <coughs> private, physical property, land property, beyond what is required to serve their charter. Wow. <laughs> they can't speculate on the property. They can't subdivide the property or sell the property. They own it for the purpose of serving their charter. And when their charter ends, which usually happened in 10 to 30 years, they literally are dissolved. The company is dissolved. Again, it's a legal fiction. It's hard to imagine us today as the people deciding to revoke the charter of Monsanto Corporation. But we could do that. And in fact, the laws still allow we the people through our state governments to do that. We just don't know that that's our history. No corporation was allowed to donate to candidates or referendum or, well, I guess, I don't know if we had, I don't think we had referendum back then, to candidates, to lobby, no money into the political process. In fact, polit um, um, corporate officials sometimes went to prison when it was found that the corporation donated. Now, I'm not saying that the individuals, the human beings could make donations, but not the legal fiction, right? There was a segregation there. Corporations were not allowed to donate to civic or charitable organizations. That was a serious crime. You couldn't donate to, to nonprofits. Now, why would that be? Well, it's because you don't create a subordinate legal fiction and then allow yourself to become dependent on it. Right? And now we've become dependent. In fact, most of our nonprofits work very hard to become uh, tax-deductible organizations, hoping that we can get big grants from foundations, which are frequently corporate foundations. And we become not just financially dependent, but there's a much more scary kind of dependency, where if we're getting money on a regular basis into our nonprofit from corporations or corporate foundations that we know are causing serious harm in our community or nationally or globally, we keep our mouths shut because we can't afford to lose that money for our nonprofits. So again, we've kind of, it's flipped the relationship between we the people and our subordinate legal fictions. Corporate records, the vaults of corporations where they kept their records, their financial records were public. Corporations were not allowed to keep secrets from state government. Imagine that. Again, you can't hold an institution subordinate and accountable if it keeps secrets from you, right? It, it becomes an irrelevancy. So these are just some of quite a few um, norms that happened at the state level for quite a long period. Now, clearly that is not the reality that we're in today. And so I want to talk very briefly about just a handful of Supreme Court decisions that ended the, the, the legal norms that I've just described. And again, I'm doing this just kind of whirlwind brief history of a couple hundred years. Um, <clears throat> the very first time that corporate constitutional rights appear on the, on the, you know, in front of us is 1819 in what is known as the Dartmouth decision. And as I, as I name some of these Supreme Court decisions, um, and if you want to write them down, Wikipedia, again, is a wonderful place to go. There's lots of places, but that's a good starting place because all of the major Supreme Court decisions are there, and it links to the actual languages of the decisions and the dissenting judges and what it was about. 
So if you want to get a little more information, check out the Dartmouth decision. That's Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Dartmouth College had been chartered by the King of England, as had many of the early colleges um, in, the, in the early colonies. And they were chartered to serve the children of the ruling elite. They were private institutions, really to serve empire. In the early 1800s, in New Hampshire and other states, there began to be a lot of political turbulence around the need, if we're going to create a real democratic society, there needs to be a way for our children to go to college. And most of these colleges were private. They only uh, allowed a certain <coughs> tiny percentage of, of, uh, of kids to, go to get admitted. And so there was a lot of political activism in New Hampshire and other states and in response, the New Hampshire legislature in, I think, 1816 passed a law that turned private Dartmouth College into public Dartmouth University. And what they wanted to do was they amended the charter of Dartmouth College, which the state legislature thought was in their right to do so because states chartered corporations. And yes, this was a corporation that had been chartered before the American Revolution, but now it was a corporation existing within the state of New Hampshire, and the legislature thought that was a good thing. The governor of New Hampshire thought it was a good thing. Um, they changed the charter. They amended the charter. And the next thing that happened was the trustees of Dartmouth College sued the state of New Hampshire, saying that the, that the charter was a contract, and therefore the government needed to leave it to get its hands off.